Good morning. My name is Lauren Treiber. I'm a senior Peace, Justice, and Conflict Studies major. And I'm Karina Zare. I'm a senior Environmental Science and Sociology major. Um, this January, we embarked on an 8,700-mile adventure to Southeast Asia. For three months, we rode bikes, ate absurd, absurd amounts of rice, learned a strange language, and grew as a unit. Welcome to the Cambodia SST Convocation. Good morning. I'm Audrey. Um, I'm a fourth year sociology and peace and, peace and justice studies major. Um, and in a lot of my classes here at Goshen, I, we talk about peace and we talk about conflict, especially conflict in other places. Um, and so before I went on SST, I was really interested in the history. Um, we read a lot of books. Um, but when I got there, I lived with a woman um, who spent the first few years of her life in a labor camp. Um, I, we learned Khmer from a woman who had survived a genocide. Um, so you can only get so much insight from books. And when we went on SST, um, the history of Cambodia became really personal. Um, so given the time, I'm going to tell a very abbreviated version of Cambodia's recent history. So just bear with me. Um, to start, uh, go back to the Vietnam War. Um, as you hopefully know, the United States was involved in Southeast Asia during the 1960s and 70s. Um, the United States was fighting with Southern Vietnam against the Northern Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong. Um, and the Viet Cong used this trail called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And this trail went from Northern Vietnam down through Laos and Eastern Cambodia into Southern Vietnam. And they used this trail to move people and supplies and so part of the U.S. strategy in the war was to bomb this trail um, in order to affect the opposing armies. Um, and so the unfortunate, res or, uh, un uh, unfortunate effect was that Cambodians um, were essentially collateral damage of that strategic bombing. Um, and Rene and Henry's hostad on service had a used bombshell that had struck his brother and his home, destroyed his home. Um, and there was one afternoon that he brought it out, showed it to them, and asked, like, why? Why did the United States do this? Now fast forward to the 1970s, and the Cambodians were still living in a really unsafe environment. Um, a US-backed general overthrew the Cambodian king, and were fighting communist resistance groups out in the countryside. Uh, meanwhile, U.S. bombing continued and really escalated. And it's estimated that the U.S. dropped two and a half million tons of bombs on Cambodia. And just to put that in perspective, that's more than all the Allied nations dropped during World War II. So Cambodia is believed to be one of the most heavily bombed countries in the world. Um, and while that's a tragedy in itself, it also had the unintended effect of strengthening a Khmer resistance or Cambodian um, communist res resistance group in the countryside. So in 1975, this group that had gained support, um, led by a very highly educated Cambodian man named Pol Pot, came into the capital city and declared 1975 as year zero. Um, so from then on, they started to convert Cambodia into a rural agrarian nation. Uh, which meant they flushed everyone out of big cities 
um, force people to live in labor camps and work. If you were a doctor, if you were a teacher, a monk, um, even if you had eyeglasses, you were executed. Roughly two million people died, some people estimate more, um, and this was a quarter of the population of Cambodia. Um, people died from disease, from execution, from hunger. And this genocide lasted for four years. And even four years later, when it ended, uh, violence continued late into the 1990s. So during our SST experience, we had the chance to visit some important sites that have been preserved from this period. Um, the first one being Tul Slang, which is a prison in Phnom Penh, the capital city. Um, and this was a former school that during this time was converted into a prison and torture center. Um, and the prison kept meticulous records of every captive that they had. And so those pictures, those pictures are displayed there. And out of 17,000 um, captives, there are only 12 people known to survive. Um, we also visited the killing fields, um, where thousands of people were systematically executed um, and thrown in mass graves. And I, as I was there, walking past these pits, um, these terrible scars of what human evil can do, um, I was also oddly struck by the beauty of the place and the nature that had taken over. You know, it was surrounded by brilliant green um, rice, rice paddies and singing birds, and there was a pool nearby. So it was a strange paradox of darkness and sadness and it's like peaceful beauty. Um, and finally, we visited the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia. Um, and this, this picture is not actually the tribunal. Um, this is us just waiting to talk to someone about it. Um, but it's essentially a tribunal where the former leaders of the Khmer Rouge, who are alive, um, the, the leader Pol Pot is not alive, but some of the main leaders are. Um, and they're being tried for crimes against humanity and genocide and other atrocities. Um, right now, only one has been convicted, and the others are still waiting on trial and getting really old. Um, so this dimension of SST was really heavy. It was really hard. Um, I was ashamed of my country's violence towards these people that I was living with and learning from. It was nearly impossible to fathom the horror that they had lived through um, and its lingering effects in the country. And it was really hard to be a tourist in these places, too. And I wasn't really sure how I felt about that. Um, but this was a really important part about SST as far as learning about the country and learning about the people and learning about uh, my own country's involvement with this country. Um, but as I hope that we can show you this morning, uh, Cambodia is much more than the darkness of these stories. Um, there's trauma. Yes, there's trauma, but there's also a lot of people that I met that are very inspiring, um, a lot of young people that are really working hard to overcome these past hardships and make their country a better place. Um, and so that's something that I found a lot of hope in. Hi, uh, my name is Brett Conrad. I'm a theater major and a psychology double major. And um, I wish that I could say that uh, modern Cambodian politics got better 
However, in 1979, after uh, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge regime was uh, kind of shipped out by the Vietnamese in the occupation, they installed a dictator, or now he's a de facto dictator, named Hun Sen and tried to set up democratic elections, which are available there, but they just don't really do anything, if that makes sense. So some people will be elected to a chair and then they just won't take power because the other person won't abdicate their place. So it's a bit of a paradox as what Cambodia politics really means. And when I was on service, which we'll be talking about more extensively, I couldn't really go anywhere because I have this nifty device that's attached to my stomach. I'm a type one diabetic, so can't really do anything that involves running around in the forest or something. So I was isolated to the city and Nate Klink, he's right there, has this uh, really bad peanut allergy. And so we had to stay near uh, hospitals and different places and you know have electricity so we could keep my medication cold. So we were kind of isolated to big cities. Oh yeah, that's a picture of Hun Sen. He's not the nicest of people. So, Nate Klink and I, we were looking for something to do, and it just so happened that my host sister was this type of lady who was what would be the Cambodian love doctor on the different nighttime radio shows where people would call in and she would give them relationship advice, which was really strange. We got a couple of people that go on the show and talk about stuff, mainly Seth. He's huge in Cambodia now. But... The point is, is that she was very well connected and I didn't realize I was living with a famous person who had a lot of ties. So what ended up happening was when she realized that Nate and I were semi-collegiately educated or soon to be collegiately educated native speakers who could write papers and edit stuff, who would work for free and were really bored, we got slapped into becoming an NGO political grant writing team, which is really weird. That doesn't necessarily happen on Cambodia services, but that's my deal. Hey, where's that clicker thingy? Oh, Musakua. This is Musakua, and she's practically the Hillary Clinton of Cambodia. And what ended up happening was that she came and spoke inside of her class, and Nate and I were, you know, like realizing that, oh, she's important and she's running for re-election. That's pretty neat. And then Nana one day approached us and said, hey, you guys are going to be writing her the cover letter for her entire campaign's fundraising, which was really scary because I haven't written a paper that actually has a price tag attached to anything. So... When it was all said and done, we had written about $100,000 worth of legislation, and you're talking about me who can't dress themselves in the morning. I mean, I'm wearing this scarf thing, I think, wrong, and also has the emotional maturity of a potato, so it probably wasn't a good idea. However, it all seemed to work out really well, and I'm happy to report that some of the grants have been coming in, which is really great. And it was, it was nice to be able to derive a sense of worth that was bigger than yourself. And I'm not trying to undercut the other tasks like in Ratanakuri and stuff, but teaching English, you, you develop relationships, but it's kind of a different sense of accomplishment when you have this big portfolio of massive amounts of paper that actually has a price tag attached to it. It was, it was somewhat surreal, and I kind of miss it. All right, I think I'm out of time. That means hello. My name is Jacob. <laughs> and I'm, I'm Henry. <laughs> Do you want me to start? Yeah. That's your slide. You talk about that. 
You start. Well, that is a Buddhist slide. I lived at a Buddhist Wat, a Theravada Buddhist Wat, on service. So that is Malkun, who was the head monk at my Wat. The Wat was about a third of the size of Goshen College, the land, land-wise, and there was probably 20 monks there. One thing I was extremely surprised about was that a lot of the monks were very young. There was a 12-year-old and one that was about 11. There were two monks over 40. The head monk is 27. So I was surprised by the youth at the Wat. I always imagined monks to be young, or I mean old, but they weren't. The Wat did a lot of community work. That was really cool. They had an English program at their Wat for students who couldn't go to regular school, and they had a music program. Music is typically not allowed in extremely traditional Buddhist culture, but they're sort of more hip there, and they used music. They actually used traditional music to reach out to the younger generation. Um, they actually, me and Lauren went there to teach English, but we also sort of had the intention of teaching music at the time. But when we got there, we taught for a few days, and then it ended up that we stopped teaching music because we were interfering with the traditional teaching, which is a lot of what they did there. They used music to teach the traditional mindset, and so we actually ended up learning music. I learned this song from one of the monks. Uh, my translating skills are not super impressive, so I don't know what a lot of the lyrics mean, but it's about, uh, it's about the farmland there and not forgetting where you come from in the countryside. It's called the Song of Le Conbassant, Sombria Le Conbassant. And I'm gonna sing it for you.
Renee and myself and Marin and Karina lived with Muslims and um, the older Muslims in um, Karina and Marin's village would have identified with the, um, the Cham culture and all the Muslims that Renee and I live with were Cham. And the Cham people are a Muslim minority in Cambodia, about um, maybe 160 to 200,000 people out of a population of approximately 14 million. Um, there is a shared population in Vietnam, especially they would be called the East Cham, and the Cham in Cambodia would be the West Cham, and also a big population in Malaysia, which is a Muslim country. And um, our, our Cham community of about 2,000 people here, this is our mosque, um, what had many family ties in Malaysia and people were always coming in and out of the country um, to go there. And that involved like about a two-day bus ride all the way through Thailand, down through Thailand, which even just from like Bangkok to the southern tip of Thailand is about 12 hours, and then you go to Malaysia. Anyway, so um, the, the Cham expression of Islam is somewhat syncretic and involves some uh, combination with local ideas of matriarchy so that um, it could be said that our Cham society was far more balanced in terms of uh, gender and power than other Muslim societies, um, which we saw in that our mother handled all of the money um, for the house and she had incredible swagger. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I was lucky enough to go to the mosque uh, three times. Everybody went on Fridays, um, so that some people were more or less observant of, of the five prayers a day, and some of the younger men went only on Fridays and maybe got up to such unmuslim activities as drinking in the evenings um, in the next town over, which was Kamai. Um, and our parents are very proud of their Cham heritage, and they would, we would be watching television in our house, um, and they would always say, you'd see somebody on television, and they would say, Kamai Chigut, which means the Kamai are crazy. Um, and so there was a sharp differentiation between the Kamai culture and the Cham culture, and our parents only spoke Kamai when we were around or if they were speaking to another Kamai person. Other than that, they spoke in Cham. I learned a little bit of Cham. I really don't know much how to say, like, I'm at the house and I'm going to go take a shower. Um, <laughs> or, like, let's eat. That's a good one. Um, yeah, here's a picture of me in a nice hat. I don't have the hat, but I'm still wearing this. Cool darb. Anyway, um, but yeah, that's, that's basically how it went. It wasn't, um, it was, going to the mosque was not so much of a community um, affair as it was uh, an individual. Um, journey for everybody. So I was never talked to um, in the mosque, except by sometimes some of my fifth grade students would be there and they would say, hello teacher, and I'd be like, I don't know what I'm doing, don't talk to me. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, that's, that's about the, the Muslim minority in Cambodia. Hi, um, my name is Joel Meyer. I'm a senior informatics major, and I'm going to talk to you about the language of Cambodia. Uh, the main language is Khmer, although, as Henry said, there are other languages in rural villages as well. Um, to prepare for Cambodia, we took um, a class last fall in Khmer, 
And then when we were on SST during study, we split up into two classes, um, a cool class and then my class. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's spelled Khmer um, in English, but it's pronounced Khmer, and it draws a lot of influences from the surrounding countries. Um, it shares some numbers with um, the Thai number system as well. But it's got some pretty neat aspects for new learners. Um, the first or the two that I thought were pretty important is that it's a non-tonal language, which makes it a lot easier to speak. And then the script is phonetic. And um, of the two classes, my class was able to learn the script, um, which was a really neat experience. And I'll show you that in a little, in a little bit. So I thought of some everyday phrases that were pretty important to me on service. Um, they're a little non-formal, but... So the first one is, I want to eat, or I want fried rice with pork. Kyomchang bai cha satru. Which directly translates to, I want rice fried meat pig. But it works out well. Uh, my name is Joel. Kyomchmo Joel. And how are you? Soksabaite. Uh, now, like I said, one of the classes learned the script, and the script is really neat. Um, it has consonants surrounded by vowels. And so if you see up there, you have a consonant on the first line, and then a subscript is a vowel sound. Um, there are no spaces between the words, which may, makes it a little bit more difficult to read if you're used to reading English. And also, the script is written in, in two different formats. So think like print and cursive. Um, on service, the, those of us who were in the second um, class were able to use the little bit of script that we learned to help teach our kids English, which I thought was extremely helpful, especially since um, they knew the Khmer script really well. Susadai, Nyom Chmua Seth, Nyom Nyang, Nyom Wang Rian Physics. Hello, my name is Seth, and I'm a junior physics major. I'm going to talk about just the average day that we had on study. Uh, we started out in Phnom Penh, which is the capital city of Cambodia. We each uh, lived in different host families all throughout the city. Uh, I had the unique experience of living with a group of university students who owned a restaurant and then lived in the space above it. So that was kind of unique because I didn't really have a set mom and dad, but I had a bunch of brothers and sisters who were about my age. Uh, in the morning, I'd wake up and go downstairs, and we'd have a quick breakfast before a bunch of us would go off to school. And then I'd bike to school. Now, I was lucky enough to live right across the street from the university, but some other people had to bike about 45 minutes across the town in the early morning traffic. Um, then we get to class at the Royal University of Phnom Penh. It was a big, pretty big school, uh, about a couple thousand students and we were the only uh, barang on campus, which is white people. So we'd have our classes, which Joel talked about. We'd split into two groups. I was in with Joel, where we learned uh, some of the Khmer script. After class, we'd head out into the city. We'd have about a couple hours for lunch where we could go anywhere. We'd have bikes, which were our main source of transportation, and so we could go all the way downtown and find like our favorite noodle shop where we could eat on campus where you could get a meal for about buck twenty-five. 
Uh, sometimes we'd meet with other students, and this is us walking down to a pizza shop where we each, got, we each met some Khmer students and had a meal with them. Uh, bikes, as I said, were our main source of transportation. Uh, other sources were motos, which are just motor scooters, where people would just be standing around going, moto, 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 and you'd tell them where you're going, or you'd try to tell them where you're going, and hop on the back, put on your helmet, and take off, and hopefully they know where they're going, or else you would end up lost somewhere in the city. Another source of transportation was a tuk-tuk. They were a bit more reliable. It's kind of a motor scooter with a carriage on the back. You'd fit four or six people in the back if you're us, or if you're Cambodian, you could fit 12 people in it. <laughs> and then we'd have our lecture at um, the MCC, no, it was the, I forget where it was. It was a lecture hall related to the Christian network in uh, Phnom Penh. This was referred to us as the coldest place in Cambodia. So most days, the average temper, temperature was about 95 degrees outside. And then we walked into this room and it felt like it was 50 degrees. So we'd sit there. At first it was nice and you'd be like, oh, it's nice and cool. But then by the time the lecture was over, we'd all be freezing and using that tablecloth to try and huddle from the cold. <laughs> um, after, after that lecture, we were basically free for the rest of the day. We'd, you could either go home with your family or go explore the town. A lot of us would go to markets after our lecture or go out to a restaurant and just hang out with friends. And so this is a picture of the market. As you can see, it's very cramped. These were very close quarters and people just had their wares stacked up everywhere. You navigate your way through and try to communicate with the stall ladies, knowing them knowing that you don't know any Kamai and you knowing that fact as well. Um, when I'd get home, uh, my family would be running the restaurant, so we wouldn't eat until about 10 o'clock sometimes. And this restaurant isn't what you normally think of as a restaurant. It's more of this little cafe type of thing where all the tables, if you can see there, if you look at my knees, my knees are sticking about four inches above this table, and I'm sitting on this little kiddie stool. And if you look underneath the table, yes, we are sitting in the middle of the street. So we'd be sitting here at our table with cars rushing by behind us, and we'd just get together all as a house. There were about 11 of us there, and sometimes Corey would come by and visit. And we'd have these meals, usually of rice with fish and vegetables, tons of other good food, and there we'd just talk for a while, and eventually I'd go to bed. Um, some of us had sort of sleeping pads where we'd sleep on, but I slept on. There, there are these rice mats kind of thin, gives you a little bit of support, and then I'd sleep on a, like a hardened linoleum floor, which you get used to after a while because you get pretty tired. But that is an average day in Cambodia. So we learned Khmer in a, I should say learned, we learned Khmer in a night class um, for one semester before leaving on SST from a wonderful former MCCer named Susie Kaufman. Um, but what you sort of learn when you're in a language class is you learn these, you set yourself up for these like formal conversations that never actually happen. And so we decided we'd do a couple of skits for you with the what you think it will be like and what actually happens. Um, so first, getting a moto, which is a little motorcycle, one of our primary forms of transportation in the city. What you think it will be like. Hello, sir. Hello, lady. 
I would like to go to the market. How much is it? Baht. Muy dola. Yes, one dollar, please. Thank you. And then they leave on their moto. But this is what actually happens when you want to travel. Lady, lady, moto. Lady, lady, moto, moto. Donna, lady. Where do you want to go? Jack. Yes, I'll go to the market. And they go. Please turn around. Please turn left. No, 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 no. No. Throw up. Turn around. Turn around. Turn around. No, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. So about 40 minutes later, you end up at a market, a different market on the other side of the city, but it's still a market. So you still get to buy something. And maybe you decide you'd like to buy a chroma, which is a traditional Khmer scarf. This is what you think will happen. Good afternoon, madame. Good afternoon. What would you like to purchase? I would like a chroma. How much is it? It is $2. Thank you very much. And then you get your chroma. That is never what happens. <laughs> This is what will happen when you go to the market. You buy, lady. You buy. Would you please buy one of my wares? <laughs> yes, how much is the chroma? Five dollars. No, no, I can't. Three dollars. No, I can't. Five. Three. Five. Three. They're arguing. Four dollars? Yes, they agree on four. You gotta kind of work for it. Which is really expensive, nonetheless. <laughs> so we had the um, great privilege of having Keith and Anne and their um, children, Mia and Simon, as our um, leader family um, on SST. And um, they were very hospitable, Keith and Anne were very hospitable, and they put in countless hours before we left for Cambodia to make sure that we had safe families and um, very welcoming families. Um, they worked with our local contacts, Maria and Nana, and um, they talked, they made sure that we were all going to be very comfortable. Um, and every week we would go to their house on Wednesday for Patea Goshen night, which, was, which is Goshen house night. Um, sorry. Um, every week there were different people who cooked, so everyone cooked at some point. We had um, Western food, um, foods that we missed. So we had spaghetti, and one time we did a taco salad. But every time we had cheese and peanut butter because those things were either very rarely eaten or very expensive to get. So every week, Keith and Ann would say, well, what is one thing you guys want? Cheese, <laughs> peanut butter. Um, so Patea Goshen Night was a great, night, or a great time for us to all get together in one space and reflect on the week, talk to Keith and Ann about how our weeks were going, um, and we really became family during those nights. All right. Ooh. I'm Marin, and I was told I need to talk about the Cambodian Cambodian environment and make it quick and personal. So here we go. Um, a disclaimer, the reason I'm here is because I am a birder and I spent three months flipping out about the avian smorgasbord that is Cambodia. 
I was insufferable. You can ask any of them. So the first thing you know, need to know about Cambodia is it's tropical. <laughs> this is how I personally interacted with the equatorial environment. It's located between 10 and 15 degrees north latitude, which is a lot closer than Indiana. Um, much of the Cambodian landscape is plains. Um, there are forests around the low mountain regions, which Corinne and I were lucky enough to explore on service. Um, they're not very tall mountains, but we spent hours climbing and sliding down the mountains in Kite National Park. Sometimes we made it to the top, we think. Um, <laughs> uh, Cambodia has a rather large lake in the central region of it. It's called the Tonle Sap, which means Great Lake. Um, the, during the dry season, the Tonle Sap is 2,500 square kilometers. During the wet season, it's about 10 times that at 24,600 square, 24, square kilometers. Um, yeah, this is sort of where Audrey and Joel spent service. So because of the extreme climate and variety of ecosystems in Cambodia, there is incredible diversity. Um, I long for the colors of the plants and animals on gray mornings like this. Don't get me wrong, I really love squirrels, but they lack the pizzazz that is commonplace in Kampuchea. Um, you can't talk about the Cambodian environment without mentioning deforestation. Um, Cambodia is the third highest, has the third highest rate of deforestation according to the 2005 UN's Food and Agriculture Report. Um, so, this is a major bummer. Um, this is more <laughs> diversity. Um, <laughs> so, deforestation is a major bummer. And I tried to think of terms that were more creative than that, but that communicates the sadness and helplessness in that word. Bummer. <laughs> um, Cambodia's environment has some crazy, beautiful wilderness. And at moments, it's a pain in the butt, like when you're trying to white out, wash out a white shirt of red dust. And at other moments, it's completely surreal. Like on my service, I ran every morning, and there would be these awful little monkeys that would get their fingers into your shoelaces. So then I'm running down the street, zigzagging and yelling, as those monkeys have their little garbage fingers. So I'm running down the street with monkeys flapping all over my feet. So. That's surreal. Bioluminescence, we don't have time, but it's cosmic sparkles in the ocean. You all should Google it. Um, that diversity, that brilliant, unfathomable wilderness, that is Cambodian environment. <laughs> Service groups. Um, Jacob and, Jacob and Lauren went to Ba Phnom, which was in the middle of the desert. Here are some pictures. <laughs> and Jesse went to Dong Kye. Here are some pictures. <laughs> Madeline, Seth, and Sarah Taves, and Corey, and Kate um, all went to Ratanakiri, which was way in the north, in the mountains, around a big lake. You should ask them about their story of trying to get there. 
It took forever. They missed their bus. And they hung out in a waterfall a lot. <laughs> Henry and Renee went to... Spike Klung. There you go. Spike Klung. Spike Klung. Mango Warehouse. Mango Warehouse. <laughs> Spike Klung. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Great. Oh yeah, their village grew tobacco. And they taught school every day. Joel and Audrey were in Kampong Pluk, which was a fishing village on the lake, but it was dry season, so the lake wasn't risen up around their houses like it would be during wet season. They, they also taught. There we go. Houses and stilts, pretty inventive. Um, I was in Krabairio by myself, which was um, really close to Simriip, which is the main center where all of the um, big temples from the... What period is it? I'm not sure. Okay, <laughs> History's not my strength. And Jake was close by in Ampol. Um, Karine and I were in Kype, also known as Sabov. Um, <laughs> these are bad. <laughs> This is our family. Okay. Brett and Nate were in Phnom Penh, as Brett mentioned. So now we have reasons why you should not go on Cambodia SST. You might accidentally peer on national television. <laughs> you might get sick quite a bit or never if you're Seth or myself. You might unintentionally purchase a ton of fruit and subsequently eat it all in one city. The tourist attractions are old and in need of weeding. <laughs> you will get a Chaco tan that lasts for months. You might hear Gangnam Style and my heart will go on every day and all music will be ruined from then on. <laughs> you will realize how weird Goshen College students really are. You might struggle to learn how to shower. You might explode after eating too much delicious food. You leave people you really care about. The skills you learn don't transfer over when you return to the US. Or do they? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for coming this morning and listening to our stories. And you should go on Cambodia SST, but <laughs> consider these. Thank you. Oh, <laughs>